0: Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Nehemiah, Uh, we're going to look tonight at chapter 9 and verses 1 to 37. So in the church Bibles, that's page 492, and in the large print, uh, 759. And if you haven't got a Bible uh, with you, uh, there are Bibles at the back, and it would be really helpful uh, to have a Bible to follow along Uh, with what uh, I'm saying. Everything that we say uh, comes from uh, the Bible uh, and tonight from this particular passage. So you can follow along uh, if you uh, have a Bible open. So Nehemiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 right down to verse 37. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherabiah, Bani, and Canani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherabiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise Because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. "'But you hurled their pursuers into the depths "'like a stone into mighty waters. "'By day you led them with a pillar of cloud "'and by night with a pillar of fire "'to give them light on the way they were to take. "'You came down on Mount Sinai. "'You spoke to them from heaven. "'You gave them regulations and laws "'that are just and right "'and decrees and commands that are good. "'You made known to them your holy Sabbath "'and gave them commands, decrees, and laws "'through your servant Moses.' In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go into, uh, go to, in, and take possession of the land. You had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, And in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manner from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. "'Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. "'You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. "'They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and and the country of Og, king of Bashan. "'You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, "'and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. "'Their children went in and took possession of the land.' You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness." But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully, while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them, in a spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you. or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors, so that they could eat its fruits and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvests goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. This is God's word to us. And in this chapter, we see the response to the reading of God's word that we saw last week in chapter 8. If you remember, in chapter 8, the word of God was opened as the people cried out, Bring us the book. And they start to follow God's word in obedience. And in chapter 9, we see confession by the book. Confession as it is supposed to be according to God's word. One of the most distressing consequences of the lockdowns over the last couple of years is the amount of treatment for illnesses that has not been undertaken because either it's been delayed or worse still, many people have not gone to the doctor's when they have had problems, because they feel like it's too busy, and so illnesses that might have been caught and treated have been missed. And in some cases, very sadly, it's been too late. But sometimes, uh, for some of us, it might be quite a normal thing to ignore health problems when we see them. Sometimes we might see something wrong and we say, I'll just leave it till later. And I've known some people that have done that and have died because they have left it. And that's very sad, isn't it? But in the Bible, sin is likened to a sickness. And it's one that many people try to ignore. People try sometimes to hide it and pretend it's not there. Or sometimes it skews it as something else entirely. And the consequences can be deadly. Well, last week we considered how the people of Israel cried out, bring out the book. And they heard God's word being read and they did what God's word said. They celebrated with the Feast of Tabernacles. They followed the law. But we also saw last week how there were times when God's people wept. Because as God's word was opened and read, it was like that mirror in the book of James, the mirror of God's word, but what they saw in the mirror was the sickness of sin in their lives. But rather than turning away and ignoring it, or sweeping it under the carpet, here God's people respond to what God's word is saying about their sin. They recognize its seriousness They recognize its consequences and they go to the only place where they can get help for this most serious of needs, the forgiveness of sins. And Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of many model prayers in the scriptures that shows us what to do when we are faced with the reality of our sin, that we see the reality of when we open God's word. And hear what it has to say. And so this prayer falls into three uh, main parts that we're going to see tonight. We see the confession of our sin, the recollection of God's goodness, and the petition for God's mercy. So first of all, the confession of our sin. Now to confess sin, the word confession means to agree with someone in this case, God, agreeing that what he says we have done is what we have done. If I was to steal your car, go in the car park and drive it off, and, and you go out and panic and wonder where it's gone, and you later on find that Steve has stolen it, if I come to you and I say, I was borrowing your car, we wouldn't be in agreement with what really happened, would we? That wouldn't be me confessing my sin, that would be me telling you what I think about what I've done. If I was to confess my sin, I would say, I've stolen your car. And we'd be in agreement that that is what has happened. When we say to God that we have sinned and we tell him what we have done, when it's in agreement with what he says we have done, we are confessing our sin to God. And that's what's happening with the people of God here. And we see three aspects of their confession in verses uh, really 1 to 4. Uh, first of all, their apparel showed their attitude to God. Notice in verse 1 how these people came to the gathering. They fasted, they wore sackcloth, and put dust on their heads. These were all outward signs of mourning. And they were mourning because of their sin and its consequences. We know this because of the rest of their prayer. A sackcloth was what you would wear when you were in mourning. Dust on the head. They fasted. This wasn't a happy time. They didn't come to God uh, to confess their sin unthinkingly. They thought about it even down to what they wore. They didn't come haphazardly. They didn't come casually. This was a serious business. This was dealing with their sin before a holy God. Now, we don't need to ourselves have a confession outfit in our wardrobe that we need to put on when we confess to God. That's not the application here. But we do need to have an attitude towards God that recognizes his holiness, his goodness, and thus the sinfulness of our sin. It's far too easy to be flippant about it. It's too easy to just say to God a quick sorry without even thinking about what we've done. Here they were serious in their attitude towards sin. Their apparel showed their attitude to God. Secondly, their legs showed their loyalty to God. Notice in verse 2 where they stood. They separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, this was for two reasons. First of all, this was because they were sinning uh, nationally as a nation, and so they would separate themselves because it was not really anything to do with the other nations. But more importantly, one of Israel's sins was integrating themselves with foreigners and the sinful practices of those foreign nations. And so standing apart from them with God's people under God's word was a stance of loyalty to God and his people. This isn't a racial thing. This was a, we are going to stand under God's word as God's people together thing. And their stance showed the willingness of the people to stand apart from the world and be holy and separate. And if we as God's people are not willing to be holy ourselves, there is no point in coming to God and confessing our sin. There must be a desire to stand apart and be different when we come to God to confess our sin. We must be willing to be holy. You can't be sorry for sin with no intention of repentance. So their apparel showed their attitude, their legs showed their loyalty, and thirdly, their speech showed their submission to God. Because from where they stood in verse 2, they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their God. So they were in agreement with God verbally, with what God says in his word they have done, and with what God says in his word they ought to do. And we also need to be reading God's word so that we can be shown our sin and we need to tell God what we have done. Now, it's quite a counterintuitive thing to do, I think. But when we read, for example, that we've committed adultery in a certain way or that we've stolen or that we've lied, we need to tell God with those words, God, I have lied. I did this. We need, to get, we need to tell God what we've done, not because uh, God is unaware, but so that we show, God, I agree with you that what this is, is what you say, and it is wrong. They read the Bible here for four hours, a quarter of the day, and as they, uh, they read the Bible, they saw what the Bible says, and they confessed their sin, submitting to what the Bible says about their sin. And then they worshipped God. And I think that's the point of the list of Levites standing on the stairs in verses 4 and 5. If you notice there, there's two groups of Levites. Some of them, those in verse 4, would have led God's people as the word is read in confession. And then the others in verse 5 would have led in worship. Confession in response to God's word and then worship, which we'll look at the worship in a minute. But before we move to there, for us today, we need to be those who confess our sin. We read about this in 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, and what that means as well, by the way, when John writes that, is if we are not agreeing with God, with what God says about our sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we need to be those who regularly confess our sin. We we come to God with an attitude that befits the God we are coming to, with a stance of loyalty and a willingness to change and we come with words agreeing with God about what he says we have done and what he says we should do. And so it is... Is regular, daily, I would say, confession of sin a part of your Christian life? Because it should be. Because I am not the only one in this building tonight who sins every single day. And perhaps there are days where you look back on the day and you can't think of anything specific that you have done. That doesn't mean we get out of confession We just confess the sins we don't even know that we have done. Because we don't even realize all that we have done before God. I think it's worth mentioning also at this point, what what is going on and what is the point of confessing the sins of their ancestors? I wanted to bring this out because today uh, we see a lot of this kind of thing going on Uh, For example, we see uh, people uh, apologizing for and confessing uh, the sin of, for example, the slave trade. Uh, We see statues torn down if they are proven to have been involved in in such things. Can this practice of Nehemiah's people, of God's people, sorry, in Nehemiah, uh, mean that we also are supposed to confess the sin of our ancestors? Well, the answer really is yes, but be careful what you mean. We are right to confess that our nation has sinned in the past, and we are right to express sorrow over that. We are right to point out the present day consequences of past sins. And we are right to pray for mercy. But we cannot confess sin that we have not committed as individuals. Here in this passage, Israel was in the current problem they were in underneath the Persians because of their ancestors' sin. And so it was right that they confessed that their current situation was justified because of what their ancestors had done. But more than this, I would say that Israel's past sins that they have confessed here were being repeated in the present. We see in Ezra and later in Nehemiah, specific sins being confessed here were carrying on. This generation was not really much different from the past. And here's the kicker for us. In our society today, it can be very easy to confess the sins of the past without recognizing that the very same heart that committed those sins is still very much alive in the present day. So, for example, slavery was an evil. It showed a heart that was willing to use people who we saw as less than human for our own convenience. But don't you see how that goes on today? In the pornography industry, women are abused, often as sex slaves, in order to please the eyes of people who watch those videos. And every time that someone clicks or watches any of that stuff, they are very much involved and at the same heart as all those slave traders all those years ago. Similarly, the, the gambling industry thrives off of making people slaves to their addictive impulses and destroying families in the process. The heart behind those things is no different from all those years ago. As a society, we are horrified at how we used to treat children, sending them down mines and up chimneys, corporal punishment at school and all those kinds of things, but we think nothing about killing a baby in the womb in the name of choice. The heart is no different today. And so when we confess the sins of our ancestors, we had better make sure that we recognize where our hearts are the same. And if you want a good response to the tearing down of statues... Psalm 130, verse 3, which you read at the beginning, is a perfect response. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Because I confess that if my statue was up anywhere and people could look into my heart, it would be thrown into the canal in an instant to rot away. As we read history and we recoil in horror at some of the atrocities that were committed, I read the Bible, and I see those same attitudes in my heart today. And so don't just confess the sins of our ancestors as an easy way of showing piety. Recognize sin in your own heart too. Well, in, verse, uh, in, in, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, the verse we read there, wonderfully we read how God Will forgive our sins. We must remember that when we confess our sin, we are confessing to a God who is a God of mercy and a God who will forgive us. How do we know that God will forgive us? Because we can recollect God's goodness. The biggest chunk of Nehemiah chapter 9 is a history lesson that recollects the goodness of God. And throughout those verses, you'll see the word goodness appear a number of times. In verse 5, uh, we, uh, the, the people bring to mind that God is worthy of our praise. They, the Levites say, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Interesting, isn't it, that they confess their sins and then they're told to praise God. Which seems a bit of a strange thing to do. But the purpose of the praising of God is to recollect God's goodness so that they know when they confess their sins, they're confessing their sin to a God who is good. That's why praise and confession can go together. And what we see in these verses is that we come to the God who is both holy and merciful. And this helps us to see that the sin we confess is very serious. But that there is a way of forgiveness. And wonderfully, in verse 5, they are to praise the Lord, your God. Notice that, your God. This God that we're about to, to, to read about and praise, this God is your God and my God. And we need to remember this is our God. The God who is a God of great goodness. Now, time doesn't allow us uh, tonight to go through this section line by line by line, and so what I'll do is give you a quick overview of each section uh, of this history. Uh, this history lesson, and it can be broken down verses five to thirty-two into three parts about God's goodness. Uh, first of all, we see God's goodness in the fact of His praiseworthy deeds. Uh, In fact, there are four major deeds in history which God shows his goodness in. Uh, In verse 6, we see that God is praised for his creation, his creation. We look around his creation, we see uh, and read here, he made it, he alone made it, he gives it life, it's for his glory that it's made, he is the God who made the universe and everything in the universe. Creation gives us cause to praise God, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's a, a, a reason to praise God that you look around uh, his creation, it's, he's praiseworthy. That's verse 6, his creation. In verses 7 and 8, we see God praised for his election. Uh, we see after creation, sin comes into the world and a savior is promised and God elects or chooses Abraham to be the one through whom the savior would come, through Abraham's family. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and he keeps the promises to Abraham that he makes. And so God's praised for his election. After creation and election, he's praised for redemption. In verses 9 to 12, Israel are freed from slavery in Egypt. God hears their cry. He frees them. He leads them out of Egypt with signs and wonders. He's praised for his redemption. And then finally, in verses 13 to 15, he's praised for his provision, his provision. So the people are led out of Egypt, you know the story in Exodus, and they were provided with the law on Mount Sinai, showing them how to live as free people. And he provides them, remember, with bread from heaven and water from the rock, so they have what they need to live their lives. Creation, election, redemption, provision his praiseworthy deeds for his people now for us today as the people of God isn't God good in his praiseworthy deeds to us we remember the same truths fulfilled in Jesus Christ all creation was made by him we read in John's gospel and without him nothing was made that was made we look forward to a new creation where he will share that creation with those he has chosen His called out people. We are saved because of God's election. He chose us not because of anything special in ourselves, but because he loved us. He saves us by redemption. The precious blood of Jesus pays the price for our sins. And he continually, day by day, provides all that we need to live for him. God is good, isn't he? And we remember he's good in his praiseworthy deeds for his people. The second aspect of his goodness that we recollect is that he's good in the face of his people's disobedience. In verses 6 to 15, you read the word, the personal pronoun, you, speaking of God. So for the praiseworthy deeds, over and over again, uh, they say, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. But there's a change in verse 16, where it begins, but they. And then we begin to see, when we see the words, but they, a negative response to the goodness of God from his people. But in the face of that disobedience, God continues to show he is good. So despite all that God has done, look at verse 16. But they, our ancestors, become arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. And then what we read about is the, the rebellion of the people who wanted to return to slavery in Egypt. But how does God respond? He shows his goodness. We read of God being a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He he doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't stop providing for them. He keeps his promise to make them into a great nation and brings them into the promised land. Notice at the end of verse 25 what it says. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Now that's an, an amazing verse because Throughout the verses preceding it from verse 16, we just read about the rebellious people of God. They're they're terrible to God with their blasphemies and their rebellion, and yet they revel in God's great goodness. Isn't that amazing? In Israel's history, there were serious consequences for their sin. Don't get me wrong, but God did not stop being good in the face of disobedience. And one of the wonderful truths of the gospel is that God does not abandon us when we sin. As Christians, we still struggle with sin. We still fall. We still face consequences. But God is still always good. We always can revel in his goodness. And this reveling for Israel we see is eating to the full and being well nourished. Those are signs of satisfaction. For us as the people of God today... Rebellion leads to misery always. We may think about going back to our old life, like the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. We may think that that's a good thing, but it doesn't lead to satisfaction in the end. Rather, we can revel in God's goodness that He has for us. And the final section of Israel's history shows God's goodness in the force of His parental discipline. Although God allows sinners to revel in his great goodness, he does not always remove the consequences of sin. In his goodness, he disciplines his children to bring them back to his good rule. And verses 26 to 28 go through the cycle we see in the book of Judges. Israel disobey. God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. Israel cries out to God for deliverance. And God has compassion and sends deliverers or judges who rescue them. But the cycle begins again. And verse 28 says that this went on and on. But notice verse 28 at the end there. In your compassion, you delivered them. How often? Time after time. Time after time. As God's people cried out to him, he continues to deliver them. He disciplines them, but he's always good. And verse 29 to 30 speaks of the times that the the, the prophets of the Old Testament warned Israel. God was patient in giving them warning after warning. He warned them of judgment, but they did not listen, and they ended up being taken into exile. The discipline of wayward children by God is part of his goodness to us you know what God could have done to Israel he could have just let them go on he could have let them go on in their rebellion and and go back to Egypt go back to slavery and they would have been totally destroyed but in his goodness he disciplines them he brings them back to himself And in verse 31, though, uh, there we are reminded again of how God, even in exile, did not abandon his people. Look at verse 31. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And this God is your God, the Lord your God. And he's still the same God. He's still good, and he still acts today on behalf of his people, forgiving them of their sins and restoring them. Now that's a, a big and brief overview of a long period of Bible history. And if you switched off at any moment, let me bring you back to the main point of verses 6 or 5 to 31. It's to recollect that we confess our sins to a God who is good. Effectively, we do this as a church every time we come to the Lord's table. In the, at the Lord's table, we come, we have the bread and we have the cup, and we, can, we, 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 we confess to God that we are sinners. Often we have a time of, of quiet, don't we, where we, we have opportunity to confess our sins specifically to God, and we take the bread and we take the cup and we're reminded again God is good. Because we have the next part of salvation history that the Israelites in Nehemiah's they did not have. For we look back to a cross where the Son of God died in the place of sinners so that we can be forgiven. And at the Lord's table, we look back again at the cross and we see and say together Isn't God good? Isn't He good? Because I've sinned again this week. I've sinned again this morning. Even on the way to church. Maybe even in church I've sinned. But I come before God to the Lord's table. And I see again that in his goodness there is the forgiveness of sins. And I can take the bread and I can drink the cup and recollect the goodness of God. And what's more I can look around at my brothers and sisters and I can see that he's also good to them. He forgives our sins. Time. After time. And on the basis of that history of God's goodness, finally in verses 32 to 37, we see the petition for God's mercy. Uh, really, uh, there's only one uh, request we see in this uh, chapter, and that's in verse 32. It simply says this, Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Uh, The hardship that they were under was exile. They'd returned to Jerusalem, but they were under the yoke of the Persian rulers. The land that God had promised them, they were in, but they didn't rule it themselves. They were ruled by another nation. And they were saying to God, Don't let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Notice they didn't say, God, how dare you do this to us? We didn't deserve this. No. No, they, they knew. Not only, did they, not only did they feel they deserved this, really, they deserved even worse. The fact that they're still in existence is the mercy of God. But they wanted to, to say to God, God, don't let this seem trifling in your eyes. See, God, the, the consequences of, of our sin. And in verse 33, they acknowledge that they deserve their circumstances because of their wickedness. Notice in verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully, while we acted wickedly. But they also recognize that God is their only hope of rescue in the great distress they are in. Look at verse 36. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. They don't request a reversal of the distress they are in, They don't tell God what they expect him to do for them, but they plea really for his mercy. They come to the God who is good, and they entrust themselves to his mercy. And what they really need is a new exodus. They've been freed from exile. They've come back to their land. They've come to Mount Sinai, so to speak, by having God's word brought out to them but they've not fully taken possession of the land yet. They're still under Persian rule. And when we are faced with the consequences of our sin, and when we sin, there are always consequences, and sometimes we have to live with those consequences for some of us for the rest of our lives. God does forgive our sins, but sometimes we have to live with the consequences of those sins. And we might find ourselves in a position like they are here and saying to God, I'm in great distress. And we are waiting then, not for God to forgive us because he does forgive us. But we're waiting for that final exodus to be completed. We've been freed from slavery to sin. We've been given God's word that's written on our hearts. We've received the forgiveness of sins that comes through the death of Jesus Christ. But we wait for the day in glory that's coming when we will be free from all distress. But until that day comes, every single day, we need to be confessing our sin to God in the assurance of his forgiveness. Because when we confess our sin, God will forgive us because Jesus has died for our sin. And he's waiting with open arms for us to come before his throne. Loved ones, let's not hide our sin. Let's not excuse our sin. Let's not ignore our sin. Let's bring it to God and confess it and find the forgiveness and life that can only come through Jesus Christ. Leaving a health problem untreated can lead to tragic consequences. Leaving sin undealt with can lead to the eternal tragedy of God's judgment. Have you confessed your sin to God? Every one of us in this room has sinned, haven't we? Every one of us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to Jesus, confess your sin and find the forgiveness found in Him. Well, our final song, uh, two songs actually, respond to this message. Uh, First of all, we're going to sing a song of confession uh, that comes from David's uh, confessional Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, uh, creating me a clean heart, O God. Uh, And then, after we've sung a song of confession... Uh, we'll sing uh, the song we've learned quite recently, uh, The Goodness of God. So we confess our sin and we recollect the goodness of God. So let's stand together, confessing our sin and then praising God for his goodness.
1: Come that I wake until I Goodness. Oh, God. Your goodness is running out, it's running out.
0: But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world.